Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Just a quick thing before we begin today's podcast. Are unpleasant symptoms of digestion getting you down? Bloating, abdominal pain, constipation, indigestion, IBS, bowel dysfunction, SIBO, colitis? Well, We are now accepting new applications for our group physiotherapy program. To learn more, go to ecophysio.com forward slash group and submit an application and we will get in contact with you once we receive it to see if it's a good fit for our program. Just a quick note before we begin, the podcast will be taking a short break for the holiday season, so there will be no new podcast for the last two weeks of December. We will resume with brand new episodes the first Monday of January. Welcome everybody back to the show. So today we are going to be exploring the mind-body approach to pain. My guest today is Kirsty. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm, well, I mean, we're in my home territory of like mind-body and pain, so I'm really looking forward to see how we're going to like converse this out. So I'm totally, totally going to have like a nerd fest and I love it um, when it comes to this topic. So we're on the same page there. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm just going to forewarn people. Sorry, we might get a little bit excited, Um, but that should hopefully make for interesting, um, you know, interesting conversation to, you know, what could turn into potentially a very dull topic if spoken in monotone without excitement. But I think, you know, um, this is really exciting for me. So we're hoping it's going to be exciting for our listeners too. But Christy, let's start off with, um, tell us about you. Like give us some context as to who you are and why are we having this conversation? Yeah. So I'm a chiropractor and a yoga teacher, and I am really passionate about using this mind-body connection as part of patient care to help them overcome pain. So my niche is sort of in chronic pain management. Um, We'll talk probably in more depth about that today, but that's pain that has lasted, you know, for a longer than a few months for most people. And I find that this integration of yoga into chiropractic care takes people to the next level when it comes to the outcomes that they can achieve uh, with their treatment. Amazing. I love it. So let's start off with, uh, you know, because everybody sort of comes at this from a perhaps different contextual perspective. And so I would like to hear your kind of like frame of reference. When you say mind-body approach, what do you mean? Yeah, I feel like the definition of this can be quite varied depending on who you talk to. For me, the idea of a mind-body approach is representing a more holistic way of looking at people's health. So I feel like as manual therapists, and Madeline, I know you can probably relate to this, we sort of get put into this box where we're looking at very physical problems most of the time. 
And when it comes to pain, it's usually related to a particular area. Someone comes to see me, they have neck pain or they have back pain or they have headaches. And it's become almost an issue, I would say, in our profession that it's not uh, being addressed in a holistic way. Oftentimes, practitioners are, are not asking deeper questions about people's well-being, uh, asking about their stress levels and what's going on in their lives and um, diving a little bit deeper into some very common mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression. And for me, the research that I have done and uh, not even conducted myself, but just looking through what other other uh, practitioners have done research on, there is a very, very strong connection between our mental health and physical health. And my health journey actually started um, in a similar situation with a very physical problem that turned out to have a strong mental component. And it was a naturopathic doctor who did the history on that and asked those questions for the first time. And it was at that moment that I thought, you know what, I want to be a practitioner who um, treats people this way and who assesses people this way because I had so much success with that approach in my own life. Uh, so that's kind of what I mean when I say mind-body approach. It's looking beyond just the physical symptoms and understanding how do um, emotions and mental health and energy and spirituality and all of those other pieces play a role in how we feel day to day. 100%. Well, if we think about, you know, the International like Institute for Pain Research, I, I, I can't remember. I think it's IASP is their acronym. Anyways, the people who study pain have recently updated their definition of pain, right? Mm -hmm. And that is meant to include in it that it is a sensory and emotional experience, right? Because when you experience pain, it's not just a physical sensation. Yes. It comes with a multitude of also thoughts that come with it. So my shoulder hurts. Now it's like, oh man, so now I'm going to have to modify how I get dressed and I can't get dressed. And that's leading me to frustration and it hurts when I'm sleeping and that's leading me to frustration and anger and there's limitations. Now I have to change, right? Like I have to change my day-to-day -day routine to basically not be in pain. And that can be really disruptive especially if you're not prepared to make those changes. And oftentimes with injuries, the injury doesn't necessarily come with a warning. It, you know, you have a fall or you, you know, something happens and like the next morning you're waking up with this pain that is persisting for potentially days, weeks, months or more, right? And so there's this person who's having an experience I am a human, right, of mind, body, spirit that is having this painful experience yes. that is also sensory. So, 100%. and also includes perceived injury, right? Yes. So, not necessarily because most people are like, all pain must equal tissue damage. And what yes. we have seen over and over and over again that realistically, tissues heal within, you know, a three month, you know, period. Yeah. We'll say give or take. I mean, if it's a nerve injury, okay, maybe a little bit longer, but if we're talking about physiological healing for most tissues, you know, yes. three to four months, the tissue is healed. So when the pain persists beyond that point, it's often not about tissue damage. 
Exactly. And I do love what you're saying that the definition has recently been updated to reflect that it is both a sensory and an emotional experience, and that that can be created by either actual or perceived tissue damage. So they're really creating this um, distinction that yes, you can have a pain experience that is being mediated by, you know, inflammation and actual damage in the tissue that we can see uh, either through observation or with certain tests. But I would say the majority of the people that I see in my practice, they do not fall into this category. Maybe 10% of people do. And the other 90% are the types of people who have had pain for a long time, whose doctors have sent them for MRIs or x-rays or ultrasounds. And all of that is coming back normal. And then that's the end of the conversation. And that's very confusing for people. And concerning, right? Like yes. I'll often chat with my, my clients that, um, not all findings on MRIs, and I'm going to switch the order of our questions because this is just how it's coming up. Like not all findings on MRI explain why you have pain yeah. because they can, they like, I mean, they did a study on it. They took like a hundred people with and without pain and gave them x-rays, MRIs to see, like, let's actually see structurally, you know, what, what shows up. And what mm -hmm. they found was that the MRI x-ray findings did not correlate with people's pain. Like some people had very mild disc bulge and had tremendous amounts of pain and functional limitations, whereas somebody with very severe degenerative disc disorder, they're like, how is this person even walking? And they don't have any pain. Exactly. Yeah, you, you could teach my, my yoga program because there's a whole lesson that we have that is dedicated to this conversation around diagnostic imaging. And I share the results from that study that you're talking about. And it's always this moment for people like you can see them, their minds being blown with this information because it is so different from what we have been told over the last I, I would say that research probably has just been in the last 10 years or so. So it's a relatively recent realization that we're having in the healthcare field and it's not being practiced across the board. So we are still relying fairly heavily, I would say, on, you know, diagnostic imaging. There was a study, it might have even been that study that says it's inappropriately prescribed in over 50% of the cases. <laughs> so it, it is a fear right? Exactly. It, leads to, it leads to fear and the words that we use uh, and, and other health, you know, we, we have to be careful with our words because that creates images in our mind, which then changes how we move and think and feel about our bodies, which actually can make the situation worse too, right? So like Absolutely. seeing those findings make, can make people very afraid Yeah. When in fact, that may or may not actually have any correlation with their symptom presentation. Yeah. And it can also lead to amplification of their symptoms or creating symptoms that aren't even there in the first place because of pain labeling. So if you tell someone, you know, you do a, a screening x-ray procedure and that person looks like they have terrible degenerative disc disease and you say to that person, you know, your spine is in really bad shape 
it creates this relationship for that person of having a structural problem that they can't fix. Mm -hmm. And it can actually spark the onset of symptoms that that person might not otherwise have had because their function is totally normal and they don't have pain, but now they are relating to this thing in their own bodies that is damaged and that can't be reversed. So it's, I know, and I'm sure you're doing the same thing um, in physio for us as chiropractors, we're really moving away from the use of x-rays as a screening tool because it's actually worsening outcomes for people. It's making it harder for people to recover. Well, if you think that your body is fragile and could like quote unquote wear and tear, we don't even use those terms really anymore because Mm -hmm. people are like, oh, well, maybe I should stop moving. Yeah. Right. And then they, they stiffen, they change the way they move, they reduce their activity levels because they don't want to wear it down anymore. Yeah. And it actually leads them to develop dysfunction, right? Exactly. Because of the mental picture that they have in their mind. Um, I wanted to ask about, and, and, oh, okay. I was going to comment also that, you know, I try to also reassure my, my, my clients that like when there are no findings mm-hmm. of structural damage, like I try to reassure them that, that this is in fact actually also really good, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've ruled out cancer or tumors or something that would be like potentially life-threatening because yes. the issue I find, and you tell me if you, you experience this as well, as well is when I have clients um, get results where there's nothing, they actually it's actually frustrating. Oh yeah. And very concerning when they can't find it. Cause it's like, Oh my God, is there something that they're missing? Is there something so bad that they can't find it? Like there yes. has to be a reason. And I think oftentimes our mind needs to anchor to something. Like if I can say, Oh yeah. Okay. It is the disc that's causing me the problem. Then I can anchor to that. Yes. But when you have pain that persists, that does not coincide with any kind of diagnostic findings, it can be a really difficult moment for people because we, you know, there are people who need a very specific diagnosis because then from there, they feel like they, from there, they have um, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they can do something about it. Like yes. I need a diagnosis to know what I'm going to do about it. So how do you, like, how do you sort of navigate this um, realm of diagnostics and, and how do you talk to your patients about it? Well, I agree with everything you're saying. It can be a very difficult conversation to have pe- with people. And so what I try to do is be proactive about that as opposed to waiting for that uh, imaging report to come in and then seeing the disappointment that they experience If I know that someone has an appointment and I've been working with that person and I understand the context of their pain, I will often prepare them for the idea. You know what? You might get this report back and it might show you that, you know, it might say there's nothing on here that explains the symptoms you're having. And that does not mean that your pain is not real because I think that's how it gets translated for people a lot of the time. Well, my doctor seems to think that my pain is in my head or, you know, I don't understand. There's nothing showing up on here, but I'm not making this up like this really does hurt. So I think, first of all, it takes skill from the practitioner's side of things to be able to actually explain how you can have a diagnosis that does explain their symptoms 
that does not show up on some of those studies. And I think that takes a lot of practice and it also takes a lot of awareness of some of the, the more uh, up-to-date research that explains things like central sensitization and the role of our nervous system in mediating that response and creating that pain experience because this is a very different idea for people. So most of the time, if it's not explained, I would say with some repetition and consistency, People don't hear this as being, no, chronic pain is an actual diagnosis. You don't have to keep searching for something uh, anatomical that's creating the problem. Like this is the diagnosis. And sometimes I've had to have that conversation with some of my patients a few times to reassure them that it's not a problem with the test or needing to seek out additional testing or a different specialist like it's allowed to be its own diagnosis, even in the absence of findings on an x-ray or an MRI. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, I mean, just kind of even saying it from that perspective, I mean, because, you know, oftentimes like why I, I practice in the pelvic health realm. So oftentimes the diagnosis is of a syndrome, right. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes the name just coincides with where the pain is located. Right. And it doesn't necessarily give any further information. And a lot of times I see clients with things, uh, that are diagnosis of exclusion. We've excluded Mm -hmm. everything else. So we're kind of putting it into this, uh, you know, umbrella to that encompasses the location of the, of the, of the pain. And so then getting finessed about explaining the process. So I do want to jump a little bit into, uh, it's going to be a two-part question. So you mentioned central sensitization. Now, obviously I know what you mean, (laughs) but most people on this, you know, that are listening are like, I have no idea what you just said. And you said nervous system, central sensitization. So I kind of want to unpack that as well as maybe having a, you know, a back and forth, you know, discussion around like why pain is a complex process. Like it's not. And again, we're talking about persisting pain symptoms. I mean, if you broke your arm, I mean, we have a pretty good understanding that like there has been damage to the tissue and and there's an inflammatory process and there's a healing process and pain in that sense, you you know, it's easy to understand for most people why they have pain in that instant. Right. But then once that bone is healed and it's been several months after that bone, like, you know, why would pain persist? So that's kind of what I want to unpack for people. Yeah. So I'll start by answering your question by sharing a story for people. This, this was the catalyst for, um, for me pursuing a career in chiropractic. I was in the midst of med school applications it was in my fourth year of my undergrad. And as part of my degree, I had to do research, which I was not excited about. was not really a big research person. I was sort of just trying to fulfill that credit for the sake of graduating. But that project ended up changing the trajectory of my career. Um, so I was working with a prof at my school who was also a chiropractor. And he's very well known in the world of chronic pain management. His name is Dr. John Serbel. He has done a lot of really important research to explain central sensitization, which is something I'm going to talk about in just a moment. And so the research project that we were doing 
it was looking at people that have been living with chronic pain. So they might have different diagnoses. It could be uh, fibromyalgia. It could be rheumatoid arthritis, um, lupus. There's many, many different conditions that fall under this umbrella. And we were basically putting a stimulus. So this cream that has an extract in it that makes your skin burn. So when you put it on, it feels like a sunburn. We were putting that on people's skin. And then we were asking them to rate their pain experience on a scale of zero to 10. And this is how most, uh, most of the healthcare world has operated with pain is that it's a subjective experience. I ask you how much something hurts and you give me a number on that scale. What we don't have is a lot of information on objectively, how does that correlate with like what's happening in the person's body? So we were measuring brain activity in response to the stimulus. And what our preliminary research found is that that brain activity is completely different in people that have a chronic pain condition compared to what we call healthy normals. I'm putting that in quotation marks, people who are not living with that pain. And so the way that that could be explained is through this process called central sensitization, which is essentially a hypersensitivity of the nervous system to an input. So something that might not have been painful five years ago is now being mistaken in the body and by the brain as something that does hurt or something that was mildly painful before, maybe you rated it as a three out of 10 level of pain now feels like an eight out of 10 pain. And this is what we're actually measuring is how is the brain responding to that information? It's really interesting because they've done functional MRI studies where they, they watch the areas of the brain that light up with pain provocation. So trying to make something feel painful. And what we know is that again, with people who have been living with pain for a long time, the map on their brain that, that relates to that body part starts to get bigger over time. And this is how people describe if they've had pain, maybe it started out as a really pinpoint issue. Like let's say you sprained your ankle and it was really, really pinpoint when, it, when you first sprained it, but now you're six or eight months down the road and it's hard to point to the area that's tender. It kind of feels like it's spread up and down. It's more diffuse. And oftentimes that is being explained by the, the brain mapping. It's creating a bigger region where it thinks the pain is coming from. And this is the kind of thing that doesn't get picked up because when we do an ultrasound of your ankle, we are not seeing what is happening at the level of the brain where consciousness lives. And it's your brain that is telling your body, basically it's assigning meaning to that experience. And it's saying, this is really painful. So that's what's going on when we've been living with pain for a long time. And it's self-protective. Like I, 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 I also want to highlight to people like the brain is highly adaptive and it is perceiving a threat. And that level of threat will be based on your past experiences of injury, what your cultural beliefs are on pain, what the beliefs of, around pain and illness and wellness were at home you know, your experiences, the level of support that you have, like if you were a child that got injured, but you know, it was played off when there was maybe a really serious injury. So all of those things are stored in the brain and the brain's job is to protect you to make sure you survive. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do that, it needs to almost become hyper alert. It's kind of like a home alarm system that goes off every time a leaf blows by because the home alarm system wants to make sure it's not a burglar. So it yes. goes off at every little input 
as a self-protective mechanism. So I also want to highlight, it's not your fault if your system is hypersensitive. It is doing that actually from, from the point of self-protection, self-preservation, survival. It's just that it's becoming maladaptive, right? Yes. To function and, and, to, and to living. And then of course, like emotions and all of that is, is coming, is coming in. So I just wanted to highlight that because oftentimes, you know, people will say, well, you know, there's gotta be something wrong with me. No, there's nothing wrong with you. Your nervous system has just gone into like hyper protection and we have to help the body begin to feel like it's safe enough to start letting go around that protection. Like it's no longer needed. The injury's healed already, but it's almost like the, the nervous system never got like the brain and the nervous system never got the memo. Yes. And like everything's healed and all is well. Right. Yeah. There's definitely, it is that disconnect. And that is specifically where that mind body approach, it becomes so valuable because it helps to reconnect the experience of the brain with the experience of the body as you mentioned, the reason why this is so complicated to treat and why it often fails with our traditional measures of pain management. It's why um, I think oftentimes like a spinal adjustment is not going to be the be all and end all for these people is because there are so many factors that become involved when you've been living with pain for that length of time. So you start to have beliefs and ideas around the pain. So you have the pain on its own, but then you have your entire perception of that pain. It can lead to um, withdrawal in relationships. Like let's say you were an avid hiker before and you had a group that you used to hike with, but now you're, you're worried about going for hikes because what if you go out this far and then you're not able to continue? So it ends up affecting your relationships with people. It affects your level of physical activity because there's often fear around movement, being concerned that that's gonna make it feel worse. There's often anxiety and depression that develop because of these things, and then also sleep disturbance. So if all we're doing is looking at pain focally as, okay, here's the spot on your low back that hurts here, we'll do a little soft tissue work and we'll adjust it. And we're not addressing all of those other things that are keeping your body in a state of alarm. That's why people only get that temporary amount of relief, but then it just keeps showing up. So I think, I think that's the key there too, right? Because it, it will temporarily because it'll locally, ch- I mean, we're going to impact the body and its sensors, right? So yeah, we might improve blood flow there and, and release, you know, myofascial tension. But, you know, I'll often say is like, if the pain keep, you know, if the, if your shoulder, if your chronic neck tightness keeps, you know, coming back and you just constantly feel tight, then I say, well, what's driving that? Right. Right. Like what's, what is in the driver? If your muscles are tight, it's like, imagine if you held your fist and you squeezed it really firmly and tightly and held that for five hours. What do you think your muscle would feel like? What do you think would start happening in your hand if you just held that much tension? And of course, this is from a conscious, like I'm consciously holding my hand. Well, I'm going to reduce blood flow. I'm going to fatigue my muscles. They're going to start to strain, potentially burn. I might start getting a whole bunch of weird sensations because my body's like, can you stop doing that? Mm -hmm. 
But where it's difficult for sometimes my clients to understand is that like, in, especially in the cases of like fibromyalgia, because it's myofascia and myofascia is, is governed by the autonomic nervous system. So mm -hmm. what's happening in that system, if it is in hyper alert, in, in alarm state, then there's going to be this underlying subconscious tension that you're not aware of. The only way you're going to become aware of it is all of a sudden you're going to start having these symptoms yeah. that show up. I can, and if I just treat the symptoms, let's say, you know, I massage and you're like, oh, that feels good. But then it keeps coming back. Then it's it, the tissue is not the problem. The tissue yeah. is just the symptom of a much greater process happening that is significant. It, it, it is a little bit more complex and requires a mind body, uh, you know, in the physio realm, we call it a biopsychosocial model, but you can add yeah. in biopsychosocial, spiritual, environmental model, because yes. we are human, we're interacting with an environment, and it's ever changing and, you know, multi, multi pronged. And so just to look at it from like this one perspective of like biology, mm -hmm is missing like the rest of what it means to be a human. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's complex, right? Um, so, you know, with respect to low back pain, because we do know that like low back pain is, you know, it's a, it's a really big burden on people's lives. It's a big yeah. burden on the medical system. Uh, we have not done a great job at, treating it overall. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so it's good to see this new research, you know, coming out, but I just want to, you know, come back and say like, is all back pain, like a structural problem? So no, it's not. And again, I would say the majority of the people that I see, it's not a structural problem. And we're even seeing, um, with the research, it is being updated to reflect this idea that again, labeling things as a structural problem might not be helping people. So there, we're kind of shifting from before we used to call things very specifically what tissue we thought was irritated. So a facet joint problem, a sacroiliac joint problem, or a myofascial type of pain. And now we're kind of moving toward giving it a more global term and, it, and it's a little annoying for people because it's called non-specific mechanical back pain, which means it doesn't have to be specific to a particular tissue because it also will often change for people. You might come in one day and it might be your L4, L5 joints that are feeling irritated. And then the next week it might be a little higher on your back. So we're kind of moving more. And I think that is also accounting for the biopsychosocial aspect of pain that it is more of a syndrome. It can shift. It's not necessarily this anatomical structure that's giving people trouble. So I, I am happy to see that that's happening. Okay. I want to talk about exercise because, mm -hmm. uh, the evidence, I mean, the evidence is pretty clear, um, when it comes to pain and exercise. So I want to talk about like, is exercise good for pain and the, yeah, but it hurts mm -hmm. response, right? So I want to talk about, you know, this concept of like hurt versus harm, safe, but sore is exercise good. What type of exercise, you know, so how, how do you navigate, you know, 
exercise and pain in your practice? Yeah, so this is a very, very common one. In fact, um, there's an actual what we call a yellow flag, which is something that alerts us in an assessment with a patient that there might be a psychological barrier to recovery. And one of the most common yellow flags that we see with chronic pain is the person's uh, belief that hurt equals harm and very specifically relates to exercise. And that's the idea that if I do this and it's painful, it's going to be making my problem worse. Therefore, I shouldn't do this. But that actually puts people into a spiral of I'm not moving. So it hurts. So I'm not going to do it because it hurts. And then you you move less and it actually just perpetuates the problem. It makes it even harder to recover. And so at some point, especially when it comes to long term persistent pain, a degree of discomfort or even sometimes pain might be necessary for you to recover and to move forward. And one thing I tell people kind of outside of this is that the goal might not be to have you completely out of pain, because if you've been living with pain for 20 years, it might not be realistic that the goal is to get you from where you are to zero. But the goal might be to have you be able to maintain your activities of daily living because that's important to people. Um, Being able to go up and down a flight of stairs and go to the bathroom independently, that matters a lot to our quality of life. So if you start looking more broadly at what is the goal of that exercise, uh, then maybe having pain be a part of it is more acceptable if if it is the means to an end for you being able to do other things. The other thing is teaching people that not everything that hurts you is harmful. Um, And that can be a little bit difficult, again, to understand, because if we experience pain, we automatically associate that as something is being damaged. Um, But a lot of the time with exercise, there are normal sensations. And what I encourage people to do is start to categorize what it is you feel. So we can determine if it's a sensation that's productive or not. So um, in my yoga program, I teach people, we have a little chart, actually, it's in the book that I wrote as well, that that distinguishes these two categories of feelings. So things like pressure, squeezing, tightness, pulling, those are usually normal sensations that you might feel from challenging tissue and that are actually adaptive. Other sensations like sharp, burning, numbness and tingling, intense level pain, that might be something that's not going to be helpful for you. Because the other thing we have to balance is not triggering the nervous system again into going into that fight or flight mode. So there is also balancing this with a sense of safety um, and being in your comfort zone. So another way to help people measure that is that you think about your pain scale on that zero to 10 scale. And if the pain that comes on with the exercise that you're doing is mildly more uncomfortable than your baseline, then that's probably fine. But if your baseline is like a three out of 10 and you're doing the exercise and your pain is going to a seven or an eight out of 10, that's probably not helpful for you. So it's also kind of keeping that frame of reference that it's going to hurt. Whether you're exercising or not, you're hurting. This is what I hear from most people. You're hurting if you're on the couch. You're hurting if you're doing other things during your day. So there might be a purpose to that pain when it comes to exercise. Indeed. Yeah. It's very similar, you know, uh, to how I kind of chat with my clients as well. Right. And, you know, the pain can be a guide for us, 
right? Like, you know, especially in the acute subacute, you know, when we're doing an exercise and there's a little bit of discomfort, you know, I'll often say like, <clears throat> you know, it's letting you know that you're sort of in the, you're, you're working the right tissue, right? Like yeah. that you're, you're stimulating the right tissue. And, and in fact, it's important for remodeling, uh, you know, if there's scar tissue for me, like if there's the normal healing happening, we want to help facilitate that re that like laying down of new tissue and the remodeling phase. Right. Um, yeah. you know, and similarly, if you've had pain for a while, like you're going to have structures that are hypersensitive to stimulation. So a little bit of stimulation is probably quite good. A lot of stimulation, um, you know, the sort of no pain, no gain, um, could actually be teaching your system more pain and making it feel more threatened. So it's like learning to navigate, you know, what is a helpful sensation, as you were saying, in terms of like pain, and what is a threshold that I shouldn't necessarily be crossing, you know, crossing over, and pushing yourself past, you know, what's tolerable for you, like, that's not necessarily going to make you heal faster. And so part of the healing process is, you know, and the healing journey is like, it's going to take what it's the time that it needs to take. Yeah. And I say, our job at the end of the day is just to support that healing process as best as possible. Like, I don't have to, we don't have to tell our body how to cut, how to heal a cut, right? It knows our body has innate wisdom on how to heal, but we do need to set up the right environment for it. And that obviously encompasses everything from social connection to getting enough sleep to fueling your body with good nutrients to aid you know that healing process right um and probably a whole bunch of other things that are just not coming to my mind right yeah okay so can you talk to us about the stoplight system Yeah. So I love this framework. This was introduced to me actually at a a seminar that I did earlier this year um, with another very brilliant mind in this field. Uh, Dr. Dimitri, he offers a chronic pain course for healthcare providers. And um, this was something I learned in that course. So this is the idea that we have sort of a red light, yellow light, green light system for knowing if the pain you're experiencing during exercise is safe kind of pain or not. So your green light activities, this is, this actually surprised me to see this. I figured green light would be if you didn't have any pain during exercise, but that's not what green light is. Green light, you can actually have pain during your exercise, but as long as you don't experience a 50% change in your range of motion. So for some people, if you're hearing that and you're not knowing what that would mean, you know, if your back goes into spasm and then you can't lean over to pick something up anymore because you can barely move, that would be an example of significant change in your range of motion. So if you experience, um, if you don't experience anything like that, it's just a mildly elevated discomfort during exercise. And even if it persists a little bit after the activity, you're in your green light zone, which means not only can you continue with the activity, but you can actually continue to progress the intensity of it. So you could add weight to that. You could uh, push up the amount of time you're spending during that exercise. Your yellow light zone is going to be, again, no significant change of range of motion, but let's say you have pain now, but it's lasting a bit longer. So now it's actually lasting into the next day. You're still fine to continue with what you're doing but you don't want to add a stress on top of that. So 
You want to hold off at the level of intensity, how long you're exercising for, whatever weight you're using until you don't have that uh, pain that's lasting into the next day. Then when you're in that green light again, you can progress. Your red light, which is what most people are concerned about. This is the one that says, okay, you're doing something that might be causing some damage. You need to draw back and then also see a healthcare provider so they can help you coach you through this. If you have over that 50% change in range of motion. So let's say something goes into spasm, something happens and you really lose your mobility or you exercise and days or weeks later, you still have that higher level of pain since the activity that would be the indication that you've maybe gone too far and that something has become uh, injured or, or there's too much. So that would be the time to be consulting uh, someone who you're working with to be able to advise you on what the next steps would look like with your exercise. Indeed. And, and yeah, and I mean, our job then would be to look, you know, be looking at, you know, what was the activity? What was the intensity? Because it not necessarily that it, could be injury, but it could be irritating to a highly sensitive structure yeah. Um, yeah. that is just persisting for two week time. So not even in those cases, again, we're looking at, okay, is this more of a irritation or, you know, was that activity so intense that it may have caused um, tissue damage? But, you know, I also like think about it from the perspective of like, you know, when you haven't exercised for a while, like there is a certain discomfort associated with exercise, even for a person who does not have pain. Like if I haven't exercised for three weeks and I go into a pretty intense workout, like I'm going to be really, really sore for at least four days, you yeah. know, things are going to change. Right. And, you know, so there are physio, like there are physiological responses to exercise. And yes. oftentimes if you've had pain for quite some time, it's not advisable to go zero to a hundred, you know, on the first time. So you want to, you know, I'll often talk about like finding a baseline, mm-hmm. right. It, you know, how long can you walk with mild discomfort? Okay. If that's five minutes, okay, great. Let's do that for five minutes, you know, for the next couple of days. And then like, let's add in a couple of extra minutes, you know, and slowly start to increase, uh, you know, from there. Right. But so it's also having good guidance on like what returning to exercise could look like so that you're, you know, more, you know, more aware of where a good start point is. Absolutely. And actually, I think you draw on a really important um, concept, which I also, this is one of the things that I talk about in that hurt versus harm section in that yoga program, is that there's an entirely different phenomenon called delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS for short. Most of us are familiar with this one. It's not pain that happens right away. It's the pain that happens when you do a workout you haven't done in a while. And then like 24 to 48 hours later, your body is talking to you because it feels sore. That is not a dangerous thing. That is not something that indicates tissue damage. That is actually an adaptive response that your body has to becoming stronger and more resilient. Now it's uncomfortable. So I'll tell people you don't have to experience that. And often the way to mitigate that is to use an approach that is start low and go slow, as opposed to what you were saying, which is very common. We see this in the new year where people go from zero to a hundred with their activity I'm going to go to the gym five days this week. And then they're like dysfunctional for a week after that. Right. So it is uncomfortable. It can be managed by changing the intensity or the frequency of your exercise, but it is also not something to be concerned about. 
Yeah. And, and that's an important, you know, keynote. And, you know, I also sometimes will chat about, you know, the healing process in and of itself, there is some discomfort associated with it. And mm-hmm. it's there for a very, very important reason to make sure, you know, while tissue, especially in the acute phase, like the acute subacute, like pain is supposed to serve a purpose. Like it's there as a feedback loop for us that while tissues are healing to not exceed a certain point, you know, like if you had a scab on your arm, like, and you're doing a movement that's pulling on the scab, you know, or you have stitches, let's say, like you would want your body to tell you, Hey, you're moving and you're pulling on the stitches. Like don't go any further because stitches might come apart, you know? So, So pain is actually supposed to be present. And I'll often say like, you know, um, there are genetic conditions where people don't feel pain. Mm -hmm. It's not a good thing. Like those people usually, you know, unfortunately don't live very long because they won't know they have an infection. They won't know when they've damaged something or, you know, tore something or broke a bone, which can have very, very serious health consequences. So pain in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It is very protective in order to allow tissues to heal. And so it's normal that like when you're first exercising and you're stressing and straining tissue, there's gotta be like a little bit of a recovery period. And so pain will prevent you from doing more so that the tissue has time to kind of recoup so that you can kind of get back to the exercise, but it should not be taken as a signal to necessarily like stop entirely unless you're in the red light kind of business, right. Or, you know, something, but you know, we often think of pain as the bad guy. And in Mm -hmm. fact, it also is serving a very, very important function. And it's, you know, and it kind of becomes this, this mystery, this journey of really figuring out what is my body trying to tell me? Like it needs something that I need to take care of, Mm -hmm. but it may not be structural, right? Mm -hmm. It may not be that you need a massage. It may not be that you, you know, need a manipulation. Like, again, there could be so many different biopsychosocial factors if you're in a highly stressful job and you're sitting at your desk and your boss is really mean to you and you're sitting there all tense and angry for eight hours a day and you don't get up from your desk and then you go to move and your back pulls, you know what I mean? Like there are other factors, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is, I'll often explain to people that pain is, is like a smoke detector, right? So when it's functioning properly, it's alerting you to something that is dangerous. And it is, it is asking you to pay attention because it probably requires you to do something different than what you're doing right now to keep you safe. In chronic pain, it's almost like the batteries are dying in the smoke detector. And so you get false alarms. And so then the question becomes, how do you recharge those batteries? Mm. And it might, like you said, it might it might involve manual therapy that can absolutely be a tool because what that does is give you a window of opportunity where your body feels great. Yep. But I'll say to people, don't then go home and let that be the end of the journey for you. That's the window of opportunity. When you leave here and you feel amazing, that's a great time to do some other exercises. That's a great time to schedule dinner with your friends because you actually feel good enough to go out it's reinforcing what we're doing with the treatment that then starts to translate into the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about like 
Cairo and yoga? Like how does, mm. you know, maybe people would never necessarily, when we may not think of those two things as like being combined. So I'm, you know, curious about like, how, how do you incorporate that as part of your practice? Yeah. So most of the time right now, the way I have this structured is I, I offer a group program, yoga for back pain. It's also the same kind of program I offer as an online option, but there is the in-person option as well. And that one is covered through extended health benefits because it is offered as a chiropractic service. So the first uh, 15 minutes of each class is educational. We talk about actually a lot of the things we've talked about together today, dispelling myths in back pain management, helping people understand where the pain is coming from, because education is actually one of the most um, effective treatments for back pain. So it's a little hard to wrap your head around, but if you come see me as a chiropractor and we spent our entire appointment, just having this conversation, like you will have success with your back pain. I would even argue more so than if we do hands-on treatment. So the first part is education. Then we take that foundation and we do yoga. And the reason why yoga as a form of exercise, I think is really magical is that it connects this mind and body together. So it asks people to pay attention to signals that maybe we're otherwise ignoring or just not noticing are there. So starting to notice what types of movements actually don't feel good for my body. What triggers the pain? What types of positions don't feel great for me? And then how does that also translate into what you're doing throughout the day? Likewise, what are the things that feel really wonderful in my body? Can we build more of those types of movements into the daily routine so that we're spending more time with the nervous system in that state of feel good as opposed to uh, alarm? The other piece is specifically the effect on the nervous system. So the whole foundation of yoga, the thing that distinguishes yoga from stretching or other forms of exercise is that your breath is the guide for the movement. So you're always leading with a slow and steady breath. And if the breath becomes compromised, you have to pull back the physical work that you're doing. Having that type of breath work for, you know, the 45 minute class that we're doing together creates a sense of safety for the nervous system. It shifts your nervous system into its rest and digest response, which allows your body to feel essentially a state of peace. So it's super important for people who are living with chronic pain. Most of those people are just living their entire lives in fight or flight. <laughs> That's why they hold so much tension in the body. Um, usually there is like, we've talked about some of the other corresponding things. A lot of the time when people come and see me and they have chronic pain, there's also a significant life event that has happened in the time they've had pain loss of a spouse, a big move, a transition in their career. So there's like a big change that has happened as well. So when we start to do practices that soothe the nervous system, that ask us to pay attention, to actually nurture what the body is asking for, it is hugely beneficial to recovery. And to add to that, because um, I do a lot of nervous system education, Oftentimes when we are in that fight or flight for a long time, it's going to impact your sleep. So it's going to make sleep harder because as far as your body is concerned, like as far as the way your brain is processing those threatening signals, it literally thinks there's a lion about to eat you. 
So mm-hmm. if you think about a lion is about to eat me, you know, am I going to be focusing on pleasurable things? Probably not. Am I going to want to be intimate with my partner? Probably not. Am I going to sleep? Well, if a lion's about to eat me, sleeping would be not a very great idea, right? From a survival perspective. How about digesting food? Like it'll affect your digestive system, right? And it can change them, you know, change the gut. Like things can change in the gut. The gut is its own brain and can also shoot off, you know, signals of distress, right? Um, Hormones, immune system, all of those, all of those systems become optimized for either running from a lion or fighting a lion, right? And we're just not meant to be in that state for a prolonged period, like it actually changes blood flow, right? Mm-hmm. I need, uh, I need blood for my arms and my legs to fight. I need energy. So it's going to dump a lot of sugar into our system that, you know, we're going to feel restless and unable to let go. Well, how can I heal and feel really good in that particular state? And so what I think you're saying is like, you can't just tell your body, Hey, there's no lion. just chill out, just chill, just relax, just relax. Because unfortunately our body and our nervous system doesn't respond to like words and language. So the only way to let your body know that you are in fact safe, that we have, for example, conscious control over is our breath, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're scared, you're either holding your breath or you're breathing. Right. So when you're breathing like that, you're actually reinforcing that you are in fact not safe. But when you pause to do long exhales, your nervous system goes, why is she breathing like that? Isn't that a lion over there? Okay. Maybe my perception is off. And now it starts to like question the signals it's receiving. You start to question the the perception because your nervous system is like, why is she breathing normal? (laughs) Why is she breathing so calmly and relaxed? The unfortunate part is that people tend to not breathe long enough because yeah. the nervous system takes time. It's like, are you sure it's not a lion? Cause I'm still feeling like it's, you're like, yes, I'm sure it's not a lion. It's okay. Stand down. Like tell the army to go home. Like everything's fine, but it takes time for your nervous system to pick up those cues. So, you know, I'll often tell my clients, like if you're going to do like a a breath work or, or some kind of meditation, like it's going to take time for your system to like pick up the cues and finally relax. Absolutely. Yeah. I love what you were saying about how sometimes we can't, we can't reason our way out of a stress response. It's the same reason that a breathing activity can be so effective for someone who's having a panic attack, telling that person to calm down the rational part of your brain goes offline sometimes when you are in that stress state. And so a top-down approach of brain tell body to calm down is not always accessible for us. But a bottom-up approach of shift the physiology, which then turns on the part of the brain that can say, oh, okay, like you were saying, you know, maybe we are okay here. Maybe there is not something to be concerned about that's going to threaten our survival. And so I think that's really the powerful piece of breath work and how, you know, there is a lot of intimidation around yoga. I'm not flexible enough. I can't do all the poses. I will tell people, even if you just come into this room and you lie on your mat and you just focus on what you're feeling in the body, you observe, you pay attention and you slow down your breath, 
the benefits that you're going to get from that are huge. hundred percent, hundred percent. Now you mentioned you have a group part and you have an in-person part. Um, you also did some, at some point in this podcast, mentioned a book. Uh, and I think there's also some online stuff. So I'm really, uh, I'd really love to know and share with our listeners, like how accessible things have now become, you know, especially in a pandemic, like, uh, you know, people going virtual and, and so there's so many new, uh, new ways to access care that goes beyond just the in-person one-to-one model. So can you kind of chat about like all of the different ways people could access information from you and get help that doesn't always involve in-person, but if they are in-person, also tell us where you're located. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for anyone who is interested in exploring some of these services, the easiest way to find them is on my website, yogachiropractor.com. Uh, for those of you who are not local, I do have a couple of offerings online. So uh, one is my book. You can get that as an ebook or um, or a paperback. It's called Back to Wellness, A Mind-Body Approach to Managing Your Back Pain, and it's available on Amazon. Um, the other thing that I have is the online Yoga for Back Pain program, which is going to be 12 classes. They correspond with the 12 chapters in the book, so those two tools can be used together. And it talks through a lot of topics and self-management of back pain, some of the things we've touched on today. And it also includes 45-minute yoga classes that dive into breath work and meditation and gentle movement, all of which is designed to be helpful for back pain management. So I do have a free 15-minute class that everyone who's listening to this will be able to access. Uh, You can find that on my website, and we'll include the link to that as well. And uh, if you register for that, you'll just get the 15-minute free class in your inbox, and that would be a really great place to start. Uh, In-person services, so I'm located in Guelph uh, at a clinic downtown called Norfolk Chiropractic. Yep. Because we've got listeners from all over the world. So we're talking about Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Yes. And uh, actually to, to talk to what you were saying about how healthcare has become more accessible. I am actually looking at expanding my services in the winter in the next couple of months to have a virtual option. So I will be launching a program that is basically a, a guided version of the yoga for back pain program and the back to wellness book. So it will include virtual coaching sessions where we're actually holding you accountable for those action steps and pieces that we're talking through in the programs and uh, getting a little bit of assistance with how that applies to your life specifically. So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming in the next couple of months. Okay. So just clarifying. So the book obviously is like a do it yourself you know, read through the option. So it in of itself is like, could be its own thing that people can go through. There's exercises in the book and things of that nature. So education exercises and kind of things that they can practice. Exactly. If they want to level it up, perhaps they can go to the foundational program, which is an online program, but it's a do-it-yourself program. I'm still, it is. it's like pre-recorded. You buy the program, you have the book, you have the program, you go through it on your own. Um, but you're saying what you plan to do is add in potentially a live coaching. Uh, so you get the program, 
you do the stuff, but you also meet with you virtually to get guidance and accountability and ask questions and, you know, do those things or clarify. So there's a little bit more um, personalized, like touch points. Uh, and then you have the group program that you do in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one-to-one care as well. Yeah, that is also okay. an option. Yeah, traditional chiro care and everything you said was correct. So there's there's a range of options from do-it-yourself, just exploring to getting more guidance and more one-on-one support. Um, and yeah, there will be virtual or in-person options for that. So lots of ways for us to connect. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that everybody has a very, make sure I've understood it so that everybody else has good clearance uh, on that. So you mentioned your website. Is there anywhere else that people can find you or follow you or is everything that they need to know on your website? And if you could repeat your website and I will post it in the show notes of the episode for people to easily click if you're like driving and you're like, I know you're repeating the website, but I can't write it down right now. Don't worry. You can go into the description of the episode and find the details there. Yep. So website is yogachiropractor.com. I'm also pretty active on social media. So you can find me on Instagram at the chiropractic yogi, or I also have a community Facebook group I run called back to wellness. So it's the same name as my book. Um, I have guest speakers in there. We do interviews. I run challenges sometimes post other tips for back pain management and just general well-being. So different options there as well. Amazing. And that's like the beautiful, you know, opportunity that you can now access, you know, we could never access information in this way as we can access it now. So it's beautiful. Thank you so much for taking time to like jam out and chat about this, like, you know, pain neuroscience is like, and neuroscience is like my jam. So anytime I have the chance to like talk the same language, I get super excited. I'm like, Ooh, how do you do it? And how do you say it? Because it also helps me find different, you know, examples, you know, uh, cause I try to like find ways to communicate these difficult concepts in a way that's understandable for, you know, people who are not, you know, of a medical background. So thank you very much for spending the time with me. My pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. And likewise, I love talking all the nerdy um, neuroscience, but also then talking about how can we understand that and apply it in our own lives. So I thought this was a really wonderful conversation. Yeah. And of course, we want to thank our listeners who join us on, you know, on a weekly basis. And, you know, if you're not joining us on a weekly basis, that's cool too, but you should be subscribed to the podcast because If you're not, then you might be missing out on some really great um, interviews. So not all of them might be relevant to you, but every week we have new guests on new topics, always focusing on how to live a better life. So be sure to hit the subscribe button. If you know anybody who has back pain, which a lot of people have back pain, you know, share out the episode. And even if you don't know somebody with back pain, Really great idea to share it out because you might reach somebody who is quietly suffering from back pain that like maybe this sparks a different perspective that like launches them into a healing process that like you may not even comprehend how you, how much you could change somebody's life just from education. So be sure to share out the episode, subscribe, and we'll connect with everybody on the next episode. Bye for now. 
Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.